Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. I've had the pleasure of working with this next composer and was blown away by his work ethic and attention to detail. After graduating from USC's renowned film scoring program, he started working for composer extraordinaire Christoph Beck, with whom he helped out on the music for Frozen and the Hangover trilogy. This composer has scored Disney Plus's Forky Asks a Question, Facebook's show Human Discoveries, DreamWorks' animated show Dino Trucks, and films including Like a Boss, Netflix's Dumpling, and Think Like a Dog. And the composer is Jake Monaco. Hi, Matt. How are you? Hey. Doing pretty well. Excellent. You know, kind of tired, but can't complain. <laughs> Staying healthy? <laughs> yeah, for the most part. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so, Jake, you grew up in New Jersey and New Hampshire. Um, where and when did you like establish a love for music? I was kind of forced into playing some guitar when I was, uh, I don't know, five or six. And uh, <laughs> kind of went with, was tagging along with my mom as she was going to work with someone and she was doing a little bit of singing. And so I was taking some guitar lessons and uh, about a year after I started, I was just like, I have no interest in practicing. I do not want anything to do with this. And so put it away. And then later on down the road in New Hampshire, I had just started a new high school and, you know, was reestablishing, making new friends and stuff and decided to try it again. And that's when I kind of picked it back up and I guess played all through high school, started a band there and that's where I started getting into music a little bit more. But the whole film scoring aspect of things didn't really come up until actually after college um, had been completed. And then I started kind of learning a little bit more about it. And then my attention got brought to USC. Right. I mean, before you were even like playing in bands, like were you playing rock riffs or like were you actively studying guitar? Did you have a teacher? I would sit there and I'd watch MTV and VH1 when they actually played music videos or actually aired live concerts. Um, and you know, we you know, I'd sit there and you know look at at Dave Matthews' fingers, you know, as they're as they're moving and doing those crazy things. And it's like, how are you getting that stretch in there? Or you know, actually, you know, any band basically of the uh, the late '90s um, as they were as they were kind of coming up. And so I kind of learned by playing mostly. Um, I never had a lot of you know formal training. I took guitar lessons when I finally got to college and. Again, about a year into it, I did I did what I had to do to graduate, but I didn't really enjoy the reading aspect and the forced way of thinking about, oh, well, this is the way to get from here to here to here to here um, or anything like that. So it was kind of, I liked the more natural approach to learning, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah. And then when you were looking at schools, what do you think it was about the USC program that, that interested you? Uh Actually, it was. I had spent about a year and a half after college still working at the University of Richmond's tech lab, their their music technology lab. And my boss there, I had been talking to him about, hey, what can my next step kind of be? I'm looking at. I think it was like Michigan, or there's a school up there that um, has a good like music tech program. And 
he suggested that I look at USC and look into this whole film scoring thing. And I was like, you mean like John Williams kind of film scoring? And I'm like, I don't, I don't do orchestra. Like I play a guitar. So, I mean, this was just a very foreign idea to me. And so I, but I looked at the program and then I started getting a little more into it. And I went to go visit the program on a weekend when they were doing their first scoring session. And I was blown away at what they were doing. I was like, I love every aspect of this. I have no idea how to write for these instruments. However, um, I love like what this program is about and like, you know, the tech side of it and there are all these different things. And there's a reason to write the music, like your, your storytelling along with these, with, with the, with the film. So that really is what grabbed my interest. And then I had to actually go write the pieces for the application to get, to try and get into USC. And I was fortunate enough to get in. I think that was, that was the game changer. Remember this, like the application, was that your first time writing orchestral music? Uh, yeah, actually. <laughs> So and doing it in finale with the um, the stellar you know finale two thousand whatever it was uh, sounds and you know not knowing what modulation and expression were, uh, <laughs> right? I still I, mean, I you I, must I, have had something there then right like the music well the, the the I looked at it more with the aspect of of songwriting and seeing you know like this is you know there are specific forms you know the verse chorus verse chorus kind of thing and not that I embraced that fully but. You know, thinking about that while then listen, trying to like listen and somewhat emulate other more famous pieces of music that you know obviously established composers and learning a little bit. I it was more about coming up with an idea and then just seeing how it evolved and then you know writing a piece out of it. But yeah, it was a challenge, and I'm I'm very thankful to uh, to my boss at the at the University of Richmond in the, in the tech lab because he was there like kind of helping me through everything and you know giving me advice. Um, so it was it was great. Yeah. And when you actually arrived, what was that like? Were people in the program, like your fellow classmates been studying orchestral music and, uh, I don't know, counterpart or sorry, counterpoint and like SATB writing for <laughs> years prior? Well, it, the, the great thing about it was I came into the class with, with a strong knowledge of like the tech side, whereas other people had a really strong knowledge of orchestration. Other people had just, mm. they were just amazing writers um, so being able to find and and watch what other people were doing was just as much of a learning experience for me because I got to absorb all of that. While for me, maybe I I was able to bring more of the technical stuff to the table. So whereas someone might help me with an orchestration question, someone might you know ask me about a tech question or hey, what's how do you get this set up or how do you program this? And you know we'd kind of we'd play back and forth, and it's it's actually very similar to you know how I work with my current team right now is like, you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And I think being able to acknowledge those is really important. And it you're going to be able to only help yourself grow in the process. And while you were in the program, were you scoring like other like USC films too? Or was it just studying? Yep. Um, no, I did. I probably did maybe like five or six films while I was there. And then in the year following, probably did another five or six more because, you know, you establish your relationships with the the film school. I think they're there like th three or four years, their program. So, you know, you, you get relationships when with the first or second year students and they still have a couple more years and hopefully those relationships actually continue on. And I mean, the first one that I got was a completely guitar-based score. So I was in luck in that respect. Um, and then I started branching out and then, oh, okay, I'll add a string quartet to it. And so it, it was it was a nice evolution of things, you know, just in terms of, of introducing different styles of writing. And that's something that I value a lot from USC is them walking you through. It's like, we're going to look at strings, we're going to look at brass, winds, choir, and how all these things work within themselves and then how they all play together pretty well. Mm-hmm. 
Were there any um, aspects of the program that you felt you needed external education for in terms of reaching out to other resources to feel like you could go off and graduate and be a full-time composer? Not necessarily when I was in the program itself. I think there are some things that just can't be taught in a classroom situation and things that only will come from experience because every project has their unique challenges. And while, yes, they can relate to one another, um, it's like, how do you handle these situations? And you can discuss it at nauseum, you know, in a classroom of 20 students and, and two teachers, or even in a situation where maybe you're a fly on the wall and listening to, you know, a director uh, composer discussion, but they might, it might feel a little bit baited for them because, you know, they're, they're also in a class and they know the, the environment. So I think working for another composer is a great way of being exposed to these types of situations, the types of things that come up, whether it's a composer being fired or, you know, having three gigs at the same time and how you're managing these things. Because again, it's going to be different for everybody. So I think that's the thing where you really have to continue your education on your own in a lot of ways um, post-USC. But actually during the class itself, I think they crammed as much as they possibly could into those eight months. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's so cool that they have like the string recording or full orchestra recording dates at the end. Yeah, by the end of the year, you're, you're at Warner Brothers with a 60 plus piece orchestra and... Uh, I mean, it's it's amazing to be able to see that. And then right afterwards, you're like, I will never have an orchestra record another piece of my music probably for like another decade until I land a film with the kind of budget that <laughs> actually has that. <laughs> right. So then how did you go about meeting Chris? Um, I It was about a month or so prior to the end of the USC program. And uh, Chris's assistant at the time had reached out to the USC program director at the time and asked for any recommendations. And again, going back to just kind of sharing tech skills upon entering the class and, you know, being able to help out in certain situations, you know, in, in the classroom, they're all waiting to do a playback and something wasn't working. I would be like, hey, you know, do you mind if I kind of poke my head in there and try to fix it or whatever? And I was I was good at being able to troubleshoot and problem solve. So I, my name was recommended. And um, so I went in and met with him and it was just very chill and vibey. And it was, he's a really good guy and, you know, just very, very kind. And so we got along very well. Uh, and from there I started my, um, I guess my, my tenure with him uh, <laughs> basically right after USC had finished. I mean, I'm sure that was somewhat competitive even then. Uh, yeah, I think I think they did they did a handful of interviews and it came down to myself and one other person and you know ironically enough the other person ended up coming into work with us for another for like you know three or four months uh, right after this as well so uh, you know when we all still kind of you know work back and forth um, once in a while but yeah it's it's definitely a competitive thing I think I think one of the more important things in trying to land a job as an assistant or for uh, as a composer in that matter is like just like your your personality and how you communicate with someone, you know, getting into a room with somebody and actually making eye contact and, you know, giving a smile and like showing that you're actually interested in being where you are doing what you're doing and, you know, like just taking advantage of it and wanting to do as much as you can. Yeah. And Chris seems like the type of person who's very enthusiastic when it comes to any type of project that he's on. <laughs> it's the most important project is the one that he's working on. We all have our moments in... <laughs> We'll leave it at that. Um, 
cool. Well, um, so when you get there, you don't start writing immediately, right? No. In fact, I I didn't write for a couple years at least. I think it was like – it wasn't until like year four that I think I actually started doing more writing. I started out doing the assistant stuff. I – made cue sheets or I made coffee. I, you know, took care of the studio. I, I, I did a lot of tech stuff. I came in at a great time. He was moving studios. So I got to take apart his rig and then put it all back together again at the new studio. So I knew how every single one of those MIDI cables, because we had MIDI cables in 2007, um, and like where all that stuff goes and how everything plays together and troubleshoot the shit out of that. And finally, you know, like I understand how all this stuff works. So when something breaks, he can leave the room for 10 minutes and then come back. And hopefully by then I figured it out. Um, so I, I did that. And then that led to doing a lot of conforming or um, addressing somewhat simple notes that may have come in. So being able to sit in the room, again, watching how he's handling, you know, certain situations, you know, during playbacks and whatnot. But then, you know, afterwards we'd have our little powwow and he'd be like, okay, this one, you know what to do here. This one, can you just you know, mute the snare and then double up on this and, you know, extend this, blah, blah, blah. Okay. These are all things that I know exactly what we're doing. We are, we've already talked about it. And so we're on the same page. Now I get to go execute it in, you know, in whatever way. Um, from there, you know, as I'm understanding the way he's writing by opening up his sessions. I'm looking at how he's doing everything. He's then coming in and being like, no, you got to, you know, move this here. And like, you know, you got to reprogram this. You got to be looking at your, you know, your controller data for this. And it's, you know, this oddball controller that, you know, does the vibrato on this instrument. So I'm learning all this stuff from him as we're going. And so, you know, over time, I became more and more uh, confident in being able to kind of mimic his way of writing, which is, I think, very important to be able to, you know, continue something on. So when he would then start to sketch something, he'd give me a sketch and I'd blow it out to full orchestra or I would put it into a band situation. Maybe he would just give me a piano thing and it needs to be, you know, guitar, bass, drums and whatever else in there or like the weird sound designy stuff. So doing all of that material prior to ever, quote unquote, like writing a note of music, I got to be creative within the boundaries that he was giving me. And I think that that helped me a lot prior to doing anything. Um, and then once the opportunity actually came up to start to write something, I think <laughs> I think it was a little surprising to him. He's like, oh, this is actually really good. Like, continue on, do your thing. Because I had, I had been laying that groundwork for so long. And so it was, it was, it was a really good learning process for me. And th that was the time that I needed. I needed that firsthand experience in order to really feel a little bit more confident in what I was doing. And during that time, were you writing to for like your own projects or was it like, what were the hours like, for instance? Um, usually it would probably be like a 50 hour work week or so. Um, and yeah, I would, I would take whether it's a, you know, USD student film or I was always trying to find stuff on the outside as well, but, you know, not having an agent and, you know, going on Craigslist at the time and, you know, like finding the, the little posts and it's like composer needed you know, copy and credit. But, you know, you, th those are the kind of things you got to take advantage of because, again, you're going to meet certain people. And regardless, if I write a spec demo, I now have a new piece that I've written for something very specific that I can use on a demo later on down the road. So, and Chris was always very supportive of my taking on other gigs uh, as well. You know, as long as my, my first priority was making sure that him and his projects were still on, on track and whatnot, anything that he needed, I was there. Um, and once we 
we started to have other people kind of come in and, and work on the, on the team, you know, they were able to kind of take care of a lot of that stuff, but that gave me a little bit more freedom to take on some more stuff outside of working for Chris. And that eventually led to my moving on and getting gigs of my own. Yeah. So when did you feel like you were ready to go off and to get your own gigs and make that your full-time? Uh, I, rem- I remember it was like, you're, you're like five or six. And Chris was like, what are you still doing here? Like you should go. And cause I mean, like, I don't want you to leave, but you're, I mean, I don't know why you're still here. <laughs> so I said it's, well, A, it's comfortable. B, I'm still learning and I don't have a reason to run out the door right now. It's not like I have a gig that's going to demand all of my time. Why should I go out and go hunting when I have this amazing learning opportunity right here. And so I just stuck with it. And and I was with him almost eight years until the point where I did get a show. And so that was DreamWorks Dino Trucks. And within, I think, two months, I I found out that I was hired on Be Cool Scooby-Doo as well. So I've never done TV with Chris. I've done a lot of film stuff with him. And then all of a sudden I get two TV shows, which in my mind, I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. Like I get to, you know, I'll write the first dozen episodes and then like, you know, music editor will be there and they'll be able to like cut stuff in. And that is not at all how it works. Like, especially with animation, there is no music editor. I have never been able to reuse a cue for an animated show as it is in the hundreds of episodes between all the shows that I've done ever. So I've been able to reuse themes and ideas, but can never just open a queue and drop it in. Does not work. <laughs> Why do you think there is no music editor on a lot of animation shows? It's it's all about money, you know, with the with these TV shows. I mean, they 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 have a certain amount for the music budget and, you know, if if uh half of it's going to the music supervisor and the composer, that's it's kind of on on the composer to have their own music editor on their team and, you know, the music editor essentially is the composer's assistant who's putting together the cue sheets or you know, another job that I have my team do would be if I'm like, oh, take this cue that I that I wrote for this episode because it's got the right kind of idea. Now open it up and and see if it works over this scene. And then you're going to need to, you know, obviously change this and you're going to need to extend the intro and extend the outro. And then you got to go into something totally different at this point. But you can have a little nugget of something to start with at this point. <laughs> well, yeah, was it you wrote like a couple hundred hours of music for Dino Trucks over all those seasons? It was something insane. It was like 1,500 minutes of music or because it's Jeez. 78 episodes. And I mean, the episodes are 23 minutes. Take out a minute for credits and title, uh, about a minute to a minute and a half for this like build sequence in the middle of it. So, and then maybe 30 seconds of silence throughout the entire thing. Uh, so you end up with about 20 minutes of music per episode. It's, it's, it's a lot of music. <laughs> Well, if it's of any reassurance, uh, when I had my meeting at Netflix a couple months ago, they were uh, we were just talking about favorite scores, and we were raving about the Dino Show. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. big fans over there. <laughs> hey, you know what? There's no better practice than actually having to write, write fast, and try to write well. Mm-hmm. You know, you're receiving all these notes, and it, it the the pressure the pressure is good um, in a lot of ways, and you know it is it has taught me to be able to write fast and do what needs to get done. And when there is time to actually like sit and, and really think about certain things, then that's like, that's the breath of fresh air that, that I love going after, you know, starting a new show is, is, is amazing because you, you know, you might have this completely clear palette and you get to invent it. And then of course, you know, by episode 25, you're like, oh, okay, I got to do the same thing again, but you know, I'm still excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually interesting. Cause I feel like you're such a diverse composer like Forky asks a question, a lot of it almost feels like, not jazz, I guess big band-y, 
And then you do electronic music well, and you've you've got some crazy Eurorack synths. <laughs> um, but did you ever? Was that something that came from like USC? Like, did you have to make a big band piece one week, or was that something with uh, with Chris maybe, where you had to go like make some rock tracks for Hangover, and then whatever the comedy things another day? I honestly I have no jazz background at all and so I remember in USC we had a big band session I I I was like I have no idea what to do here and so I mean I I had to be walked through that process anytime there's anything having to do with jazz at Chris's he'd be like no 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 <laughs> I mean I there just wasn't there wasn't enough of it for me to really get a solid training like behind that there was there was way more orchestra and that's that's what I wanted to pull the most of. And then oddly enough, over the course of the last maybe like three years, there's been a lot of things that have come up that have needed a a, a jazz or, you know, big band type of score. I mean, you know, Forky's in that realm. Um, I just finished uh, this um, Secret Life of Pets ride that was going to open this month at Universal Studios here, but now it's been postponed a little bit. But that's actually like, you know, taking a little bit of Desplat's score for the Secret Life of Pets and like you know, doing an intro and an outro using his stuff, but then actually creating stuff in the style of um, for the rest of the ride. And again, these are things that like, I'm just not all that familiar with, but each time I get one of these projects, I, I have the people in place where I can actually go to ask them, how do I do this? Or, you know, like I've written a piece, this is what I know I wanted to sound like, I have the structure of it. Now, how do I jazz it up? Or like, how do I get from here to here in a more, in a, in a way that is more um, in terms of the style? But yeah, so each time I I would just get to learn a little bit more, like how things are voiced, how things are phrased. And it's exciting now to get something like that because I have a little bit of a foundation and now I kind of want to start learning a little bit more here and there. And I love going to the, I, you know, I have a lot of friends that are musicians that will actually play on the sessions and I can email them I can, in the midst of writing and be like, listen, this is what I want to do, you know, using this, is this possible? Or can you do this type of thing or, or whatnot? And everybody's really great with the kind of feedback that they're, that they're able to supply. Like they're, they're just as into it. So it's a, it's, it's just a big learning experience. And then uh, a lot of the, a lot of the electronic stuff came from working with Chris a little bit and then diving more and more into how Ableton Live works within itself, but then also running in Rewire um, and just kind of using that on an almost daily basis. And I mean, even working with you a little bit and learning about, you know, live and how that works with Splice and, you know, like all this other stuff. So it's like each person I meet, I, I love learning as much as I can from that person and being able to teach whatever I can. Uh, I think, I think it's right. really important in any relationship. For sure. Yeah. And it seems like you, I don't know, have this obsession with just uh, learn constantly learning, which is so cool. <laughs> it's like what the, at the point when you think you you're you're done learning, then it's 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 over at that point. <laughs> right. I, I need to that. That's what life is. It's like taking in as much as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. On that, what type of music are you listening to these days? Like, what's inspiring you? It's <sighs> a good question. Um, I try to. I, I think when we're in the house we try to find anything that is that is kind of bubblegummy as we can having a 6 year old you know like he's all about taylor swift um or pink and you know we're it's fun music and especially during this time like you know you need that lightness um to be able to jump in that passion pit i love them um like that kind of just upbeat stuff and then if we're all chilling then there's probably some sort of like instrumental piano you know classical study playlist on Spotify or something. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of that Taylor Swift, or actually really anything that Max Martin touches, I feel like there's something so painfully simple about what he does, but he just gets, he's a very economical songwriter. Like he doesn't have to do too much or overload a track with sounds everywhere, but everything he does is just so consistent. That is a great point. I think it's a lot, uh, a lot of beginner composers actually like, and I, I mean, I did this and I still do it is, you know, you overwrite for a scene or you, or you're just throwing too many things on top of one another. And this is doubling. This is doubling. This is, you know, like there's just too much happening. And it's like, pare it down to the simplest of aspects. And then once you have that solid base, that solid foundation, then it's adding the ear candy or whatever the other thing is that's going to make it, you know, having that original sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. It's like, if you can get one good idea in, you don't need to overload the audience with too much else. Exactly. You've already won. You've already won. <laughs> yeah. Just don't, don't ruin the one good thing you have. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and are you still playing guitar too? Like, are you learning how to do like jazz comping or? Oh no, I have shredding? again no no interest. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, like, there's definitely certain. I love songwriting, and that is typically where my guitar playing will will lead to. Um, grabbing an acoustic and just keeping it simple like that. But no, not necessarily diving into like actually playing jazz and or learning how to, you know, finger the right chord pattern, blah, blah, blah. So I still try to avoid that like the plague. Uh, And one other thing I want to ask you about is just having your studio be part of your house. And I think a lot of composers have like some ideas about like going to an external studio and there's something that feels more like work about that. I just wanted to like kind of talk about like the pros and cons of having the studio so close. Uh, There are definitely both, especially... At this point, you know, with where we're all at, uh, you know, under lockdown, uh, it's it's really important to have good work and home boundaries. And I am still trying to figure out how that is going to work. And I think it's, again, it's a learning experience for myself as well as um, my family. And, you know, when my my son goes in for his, his Zoom class at 930 in the morning, at that point, it's like, okay, now I'm going to go out to work. And then, you know, I can, if anybody needs anything, I can always pop right back in. But sometimes it's like, oh, I have this cool story. Let me let, you know, my husband's running out to tell me that. Or I something really cool here happened and then I'm running in to tell him or whatnot. And then it's like getting back out here and it's getting back into the into the flow of things. You know, I read something somewhere that was like, if if you're interrupted in your thought of your, your train of thought, then it t- usually takes 15 to 20 minutes for you to actually get back to that same place. Just interesting. Uh, but I think, you know, not having the option of running in would definitely help keep focus, but it's also nice not to have a commute or my commute being 20 feet or whatever it is. <laughs> right. And yeah, you just got your studio renovated or sorry, you moved studios yep. and had the, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's been great. <laughs> Besides having a, a standing desk now, what are the other like big <laughs> things that you wanted to have having been at studios before and then being able to redesign something? Um, Prior to this, when I was working, I had a I had a converted two two car garage, and um, which was great, and it served the exact purpose that I needed it to at that point. But having an assistant on site was difficult because they were in my house and you know a spare bedroom, and so that was even more difficult in terms of the work and home boundaries. But 
what I wanted was to have a place that had a room for me and then a live room so I could actually have some recording sessions and my assistant could be on site, have a rig actually in the live room. And then to be able to have a small kitchen and bathroom, um, again, so it's a self-sustainable entity in that respect where it could be separate from the house entirely. And uh, so that's what we were able to achieve and very happy with it. The live room probably could fit a dozen string players and... Within the studio, there are five discrete places to actually put people. So having a small band, like we could all get separation. And I'm excited for the time when I'm able to actually have people over here. <laughs> and yeah, I guess next, just on the idea of like being very versatile as a composer, what type of projects do you think you'd want to score next if you could pick genre or even just the idea of the stories? I love psychological thrillers. And I think getting into that realm where, you know, where the music can be just as much of, you know, like a, a mind fuck as the, the story itself is like, it's, it's exciting to me to try to get into that. Um, and the opportunity hasn't really come up given that my, my, <laughs> my resume is mostly filled with animated shows and, and comedies. Scooby-Doo wasn't a psychological <laughs> thriller for you. <laughs> I tell you, um, there were definitely episodes, I will tell you, but, um, <laughs> No, I mean, it, it would be exciting to kind of get into into that realm. I think it's a, it's obviously a very different way of scoring. You know, with, with animation and comedy, you are, you're commenting or acknowledging on a lot of the visual things that are happening and, you know, versus really just setting the tone um, for a scene overall and really commenting on that specifically and embracing it. Yeah, that's so weird because I remember in college or right as I was graduating, everyone still like the goal would probably be to do like a Hans Zimmer action movie. Yeah. But it seems like the goal for a lot of people now is to get like the A24 films or the, I don't know what, it, like the Midsommers and I, I think kind of there's a, there's a lot. It, it's very gratifying to, to be able to do something that, it, that is more original, that isn't buried by sound effects or, you know, isn't just this like constant in your face, you know, that every action scene needs. And so, yeah, I think, I think having the opportunity to, to, it's just, it's more musically satisfying in my opinion. <laughs> Amazing. Well, we're going to go into the last segment for the podcast. Okay. This is called Tech Talk, a segment where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. <laughs> so first is uh, DAW. Uh, what DAW do you use? Cubase, Ableton Live running in Rewire, and Video Slave takes care of my video, and they all play very nicely together. I think I have to turn you on to Reason soon. I probably, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's that's our that's our next uh, learning experience. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> next we've got uh guitar pedals. Oh, I love Strymon. Basically anything that Strymon makes is is pretty amazing. Um I have the timeline and the big sky here, as well as Deco. And I got one more somewhere. I'll find it. But um I love those and the Moog, the Moogerfugers pedals, the uh, the analog delay, the 104, an LFO or a low frequency something or other down here. Uh, those are you, those are my like, go-tos just just for creative sound design. And the way that I have things set up now is like I I'm able to plug you know hook my guitar into any of this stuff, but also you know having the Eurorack stuff right next to it, and then being able to take anything out of there, go into these lunchbox uh, radial. Uh, EXTCs to like reamp, get down to Eurorack level, 
go go in there and mess with uh, anything and then have it come back into the pedals or into the into the system to or into Cubase and record it there. It's just like it, there's so many possibilities of going from something to something and that endless, you know, that that void is just is very exciting to like just experiment. Um, and everything. And I find myself, it's like hours later and I have like the one cool sound, um, out of, out of the entire thing, but man, was that worth it? <laughs> right. Hours later, you realize you haven't written any music. <laughs> <laughs> man, but that one sound or that one, that one little motif, the little nugget that you can like then expand upon is so worth it, man. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> really is. I brought one of my film composer friends into a, he was joking about how easy pop songwriting is. So I brought him into a pop session and we spent the first hour and a half with the artist in the room messing with his Euro rack. Really? <laughs> and coming up with this like crazy sound. <laughs> and then we looked over and we we're like, oh wait, like no, we need to like have a song. So I just put down like four chords after, but it's true. <laughs> like having like an inspiring sound there. It's that one gold nugget that you can just expand on and then I I love yeah. that man and that that's that's another reason that I like I love working with musicians whether it's prior or during prior to or during the writing process because they'll they're able to do something that's so idiomatic to to their instrument or something that's just different or weird that I never would have thought of. I mean, they're the ones that have that are masters of of their instruments. So, it's like wait, what can you do here? Oh, what if you took this and did this and having that material and then putting this that little audio file into the you know the the morphogene and seeing how that can then play into the guitar pedals and everything it's like it's it's crazy i love it <laughs> yeah i just did a demo for the first time where i it was a really rushed thing but i i wrote the melody first and then i sent it to the violin player who recorded on the demo and then he sent it back and i orchestrated and did the rest of the computer stuff around that and it's really interesting when you collaborate in that way with real players i think it ends up with a with a a more unique at least at this point um product because you do have a little more flexibility and you're branching out from what the samples provide i i love how great the samples are these days and there's more libraries out there than we can count um but again it's it's finding something that that's that's not accessible to everyone to just you know pick up and and put into their into their piece or a lot of these, you know, things that they have out now where it's like you push one key and you have an entire queue basically written for you. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, and on that, the last topic here is, uh, well, I have written down Spitfire slash orchestral tools. I've kind of forgot what you've been using. <laughs> um, um, combination of everything, man. I, I, I love the orchestral tools stuff. Um, I actually combined the Berlin strings along with, I think it's uh, Audio Bros LASS. Those are those are a little a little more imperfect, and I think layering that on top, laying like the 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 smaller chamber sound on top of like Berlin strings, gives it just a slight more bit of realism. I, I think layering samples like that is actually a, a good tool too to make it sound just slightly different. Sample modeling and audio modeling, I love their stuff, especially for the jazz and smaller ensemble material. I think they're their brass is unbelievable. Not in like a big orchestral setting, but you know, specifically for you know, small small band. Let's see, Spitfire. Or what about drums too for like the jazzy stuff? Uh, I, I use addictive drums a lot, um, and even their their jazz kits. They have a they have a sticks and a jazz brushes um, pack. Those are great. And then also Project Sam's uh, Swing and Swing More. Those are also good. Uh, I think they're like their pre-programmed fills are great because you know they. It's again, it's something that I might not know idiomatically how best the drummer can do it, but it's something in the session to 
at least give the audience an idea. And then 99% of the time, if I'm going to go and record this stuff, I will say, take, li- I'll, you know, to the musicians, you know, take, take liberty at this spot. Don't feel like you need to adhere to this specific fill. And then that way they can, they can do something that might be more in the style that, you know, the rest of the pieces or something. Cool. Well, you nailed it here with Tech Talks. You don't tell the people what you have coming up. Uh, yeah. So today, May 8th, um, a film called Walkaway Joe uh, is out for uh, video on demand. Actually, Chris and I co-scored that one. And then in a couple weeks, there is a Pixar Spark short that is coming out. And it is called Out. Uh, very excited about that. It's it's really an amazing piece. Um, and then... On June 9th, uh, Think Like a Dog is coming out, and hopefully there'll be a soundtrack to accompany. Amazing. All exciting stuff. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is... The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, until next time, this has been Matthew Wong. <laughs>